Often respected podcast hosts Scott Corelli and Nick Jimenez met online in 2006 and began podcasting together shortly thereafter, discovered Star Wars Minute in 2014 and launched a Movies by Minute podcast of their own a year later, focused on the Back to the Future trilogy, completing it less than three years later with 340 episodes about the films themselves and five about the Universal Studios theme park attraction from the early 1990s. Received over 100 five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts, in early 2018 completed 95 episodes Episodes of the Cornetto Minute, dedicated to the Edgar Wright-directed comedy trilogy starting with 2004's Shaun of the Dead, one minute at a time. The show is nowhere near as popular with only four reviews on Apple Podcasts and has been on hiatus ever since. Hey, Scott, how's the hiatus? Well, I haven't been on hiatus. Not exactly. That's right. You've been working on that little side project, Spider or something. Spider-Man Minute. I don't know if I'd call it a side project exactly. I would. You know, I'm surprised you didn't take a break after last season of Cornetto Minute. That's what I did. I prefer to take my breaks behind the mic. Indeed you do. And that's why it's high time such skills were put to better use on Cornetto Minute Season 2. I'm sorry? Hot fuzz. You want us to cover every minute of Hot Fuzz? Yes, lovely. Isn't there a weekly podcast we could do? Oh, no. Can I just stay on hiatus then? No. Do I have any choice in this? No. But I kind of like being on hiatus. You always said you wanted to cover Hot Fuzz one minute at a time. I don't remember telling you that. Yes, you did. You said, I'd love to cover Hot Fuzz one minute at a time someday, Zach. <sighs> Fine, but there's no way we can perpetuate the amount of carnage and mayhem in every minute of Hot Fuzz and not incur a considerable amount of podcasting. 115 daily episodes? Not a problem. The Cornetto Minute returns to investigate the gunfights, car chases, and proper action of Sanford's finest one minute at a time. It's about to go off with Edgar Wright's Hot Fuzz this November at DuelingGenre.com for the greater good. For the greater good. everyone and welcome to the protagonist podcast where each week we talk about a great character in a great story except in those weeks when we don't this could be one of those weeks i'm being joined by todd peterson welcome todd hello again and producer andrew welcome andrew hello to play another one of our elevator pitch mashup games our goal this go round is to take a an existing public domain work so something that could be adapted without having to worry about rights at all and presenting it in a new genre of storytelling and we're going to go somewhat of a draft round instead of drawing from hats this go around we're each going to be selecting versions that we think would work well but we're going to workshop them for five or ten minutes as a group and you'll all be able to hear that and uh and uh, if you want to jump in and play along feel free to leave comments on our facebook fan page for the discussion there if any of these stand out as something that would work particularly well or that you'd be interested in tweaking so uh i think we're just going to jump in and give you our first example and for that i will be making the first selection and i'm going to select the great gatsby for my work uh the classic tale of the roaring 1920s in america and the hubris of every character in the story really <laughs> <laughs> that leads to uh, disaster. Um, we have 
uh, Gatsby himself, who is putting on airs as a rich man trying to attract the interest of a love of his life from the past, Daisy, who is currently married to a not great man. Uh, so that's great, Gatsby. And I am pitching this as one of those MTV reality shows that's not really a reality show. <laughs> that, that's the combination I'm going to be looking for. I could see this as um, a bit of Cribs, where if I am remembering correctly, that is a show where rich people showed off showed yeah, off their their wealth, lifestyles right? of the rich and famous, except um, hosted by the owner of the home. Okay, yeah. Uh, or um, didn't they have a reality show that turned out to not be quite reality called The Hills? Is that right? Am I remembering this correctly? I don't know so much about that one. Something along those lines where there's a lot of like soapy relationships that are happening. I suppose mm-hmm. the real world is is kind of the granddaddy of all reality shows and certainly fits that mode. And I could just see great, uh, you know, Jay Gatsby hosting parties at his mansion with reality TV cameras around. And we're just going to follow <laughs> the action. I mean, if you I mean, some part of it, if you want to really couch it as cribs, that basically writes itself because he's just showing off his his estate. It's like, yeah, well, I really like to take care of my lawn. But when I have parties, I make sure that they do the other guy's lawn, too, just to make it look good. I want my neighbors to look good so that I look good. Right. Raise the whole area. Um, You know, here's my pool. Look at this library. These books are in pristine condition. (laughs) Let me up the ante on this. I just went to uh, uh, wikipedia.org and learned that The Hills is set for a revival series in the June of this very year, Hills New Beginnings. <laughs> All right. And, and is that, if you could glance at that Wikipedia page, is it a pseudo reality show? Like, kind of gets presented as a reality show, but it's also somewhat scripted? I kind of remember that from news articles when it was on. I guess it's, we're, we're blending. It's not just... nodding to that. It, it, it does uh, acknowledge that it has been recognized as a guilty pleasure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so maybe I'm thinking MTV reality show was slash wrestling, professional wrestling. Where oh, here's a line from this. The, the series is often criticized for tending towards a narrative format, more commonly seen in scripted genres. So I think it is kind of uh, existing in that space uh, between. Can you the imagine overlapping if of the Venn diagrams? Did, did just drop, uh, you know, they announce a reality show about a rich kid and it's just borrowing the plot of great oh, and, and they don't tell anyone. <laughs> and he's just got a rich neighbor who's showing him the high life and everything. I imagine that yeah, this is we'll, we'll probably check out been, my other apartment in the city. I imagine this must have been pitched and that the people sitting around the table was like, uh, Great Gatsby, is that a book? <laughs> oh, well, just borrowing again, like the, the idea of Cribs, he's like, Can I show you my shirt collection? Do you mind if. Uh, <laughs> If we take a moment and just look in this closet, but have no, you ever actually, seen so many European cut shirts? I I actually I like using some of those elements, but I like what you were saying with the um I mean you have to do skew narrative, but where you're couching it as a reality TV show where you're following um what it's Nick, yeah? Right. Yeah, Nick, the, uh, Nick moving into his new neighborhood. And he's learning the ropes about, you know, well, but across the bay, there's the the old money people and they don't like us so much. Um, and you have all these shots of of his neighbor on the edge of the dock, just looking at the green light at the end of every episode. <laughs> That's what the credits roll to. Nick Carraway <laughs> exactly. is, the, is the narrator. Yeah. And and so he's like, 
you know, they go and they spend time with their other friends that they pick up at, at the, um, you know, partway to the city and they go into the city and they, they have parties there. They have parties in the apartment. They have he's parties got a sporty in the girlfriend that he kind of flirts with, but is she his girlfriend or not? Yeah. He, he's not yeah. quite sure. <laughs> and, and then you see all these, these times when they're at the other place and it's like, it seems like he's really into this Daisy girl. <laughs> I know. And then they would have the, the breakout. Uh, what do they call them? Those uh, interview segments. Yeah. Confessionals or something. Yeah, The confessionals. But here's the problem. Something has happened. There's been a slip in reality. I can now no longer think of The Great Gatsby as anything but a reality television show. <laughs> when you're picturing it, even in the 20s, I, it's yeah. still in the, it. Like these filming techniques are how it's presented. I'm like, no wonder all of the the adaptations thus far have failed in their own ways <laughs> because they aren't true to the fact that this is reality television. And like the big the big cliffhanger at the season finale is Jay Gatsby's got a secret, guys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, think about it. They, you know how they have all that the sort of B roll cutaway. It would always be, you know, to the yeah the light on the dock, T.J. Eckelberg's glasses. You know, mm-hmm. it, it would. It, oh gosh, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die. This is so- <laughs> and then, but then you get to like the final episode. And they're they're doing the promos, and it's like you won't believe how real this gets. And they're and you've got like breaking windows, and you've got a car crash, and all this stuff. And you're like, you you get people who have been on this whole time, and they're like, this show's getting really nuts for this last episode. What is going <laughs> you get, on? You get the, the shaky footage from a distance of them trying to shoot the pool, and you're like, was that a body floating in the pool? But you can't quite make it out because the camera's so shaky and so yeah, far and away. You, <laughs> it's it's one of those times where it's like really intense, and you know it's intense because the the producers you hear them on on the film instead oh, yeah, of just the, the producers scenes. are breaking like, the force guys guys was that a body is that a body was that a gunshot somebody get some eyes on the on the pool <laughs> and at some point somebody would just like pull the mic off and walk <laughs> like look i'm out that would be tom right the right yeah the the, yeah. the rich husband we're done yeah. we're done and he pushes this and just get the cameras back. out of here knocks the camera like, guys, i'm so sick of this show <laughs> Okay, I mean, and then there's like the shot of Daisy. Really like, well. I don't, I don't want to talk about it. Like, she's really quiet. All of a sudden, she she had been like really free in all the confessionals, and now she's really quiet. And like, I can't, I can't talk about it, guys. <laughs> and I think so. You have occasionally where they're because because sometimes when you've got these reality ones, they'll do segments that are almost in the style of other things. And so you can do the crib crib style segment where mm-hmm. he's showing off the house and and everything. And you've got the party segments where it's like, just look how intense this party is. You know, we're uh, showing oh. off all the chandeliers, all the champagne, all that I, stuff. I think what you'd have to have is like kind of the breaking the fourth wall of Nick. Like, I've been invited to this party, guys. I don't know if you can get in, but then you see Jay very happily signing all the release forms. It's like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. come on in. <laughs> Cameras, yeah. you welcome. Guys, you guys want to see here. the party? Let me tell you a few things. You want to see the house? Let's go. <laughs> and I, I got this new job. It's a little bit of weird. So, you know, there's the, the work section. Mm-hmm. And you get, and I think with um, when they meet Wolfsheim, they need to not address it. I assume we're, I'm, I'm picturing this in, in modern day, yeah. um, but mm-hmm. I mean, you could do it in the twenties, but I feel like they need to not address it. But one of the cameras just zooms in really tight on his cufflinks because the producer's like pointing out, it's like, like get those cufflinks, are those teeth? <laughs> <laughs> and how often would there just be a cutaway to Nick? Kind of doing like a Jim Halpert from the office face. Yeah. He's like, what's going 
Oh, wait, like, every time he's in the room with Jay Gatsby and Daisy and Tom, he's like, I don't think I belong (laughs) here. This is some awkward (laughs) tension. And the camera just, like, cuts to him. But we don't want it to be, like, full-on mockumentary style. It's just Mm -hmm. somebody knows that there's a camera and is like, sometimes he needs to, like, make sure that they are on the same page as him. And I love the idea of, like, the camera, like, from a distance rack focusing, like you said, on Gatsby, on the dock end. But it's being shot from across the bay, like... Is he just sitting out there? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or like all those times when it's Nick Gatsby and Daisy together. Uh-huh. And it's just like kind of playing between them. Like, Hey, we're all kind of doing like something. They cool. think they're far enough hey, away from the cameras so the that it's third- okay, but they're still mic'd. And so you've got all their audio. <laughs> yeah. And then Nick's like, yeah, I guess I'm the third <laughs> wheel. Maybe. <laughs> and all that other kind of stuff. But yeah, it would be really cool. You know, they would do some stuff where maybe they would go, you know, like take a look at some of the criminal mm-hmm. activities or, you know, I'm doing air quotes, criminal activity yeah. that's going on. Um, but it would be awesome. Oh, plus would it, would it do the funeral? Oh, I don't know. I think probably it you got to do that as a closer. Like, 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 yeah, that'd be like your last episode. The whole idea of organizing a funeral and only one person <laughs> comes. Right. And it's like, uh, guys, this has gotten a little too sad. This is gonna be the last episode of the series. This is not what, <laughs> we signed up for when we were doing yeah. this reality TV show. This was supposed to be like the party life of New York's East egg. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. And if, if Nick is like, like from Cincinnati or whatever, then the final thing would be, he's just like, guys, I'm Cincinnati. moving back home. I mean, I know the show is for me moving to New York, but I think you're going to have to end it. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I think, I think that I one like definitely works. Uh, so let's that settled go, uh, in really nicely. Andrew, what, why don't you go ahead and choose? And we're saying like you can choose either a specific work or just a creator and work with their style and, and mm-hmm. then uh, whatever mode of storytelling you want to play with. We'll just we'll just talk through it. Okay, so this is one that I've had for a while. This came to me one time watching Parks and Rec. I mean, I mean, this has got to be more than four years ago. Um, and I've mentioned it on the podcast, but a Shakespeare mockumentary style. So you can actually cut away for the monologues. Um, and do them confessional style, but it's like the office, like parks and rec. They can, the people can do asides literally to the camera. Um, and they'll get one-on-one screen time for that. But it's intercut with this. It's like, you're in the scene, you cut away to them talking to the camera and then you cut back to the scene as it was happening right then. Right. Yeah. So would it be done as a series, meaning like you could sort of do different plays, have these little kind of chunked out or like the Lancastrian tech, tetralogy the way i've always pictured it was like trying to find the right one to do um but i i've thought about several of them i've thought about merchant of venice i've thought about romeo and juliet i've thought about hamlet so i've never been sure what is the right one i mean if you're if you're doing mockumentary it feels like we should probably be doing a comedy right because yes probably uh, like i can immediately picture a hamlet soliloquy being done this way but it also doesn't feel quite right tonally. <laughs> um. mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the comedies would probably be better. I hesitate to do much ado about nothing because that feels like it's one of the most adapted Shakespeare comedies, mm-hmm. but, but it wouldn't be uh, what bad. About like Twelfth this. Night? What about 12th night? Cause you get a bunch of like sneaking around. And, and so the mm-hmm. camera could be like capturing the sneaking around for the audience and pointing it out to the audience. Uh, but you're still left with some of the characters being oblivious. Yeah. Um, right. Like Malvolio's like trying to pull some stuff off and you could like be following him. Like he's trying to 
you know, as he tries to sort of, you know, orchestrate these uh, uh, behind the scenes things that he's trying to do in that mm-hmm. play. What about As You Like It? Hmm. Because that's got, you know, the audience knowing that certain people are dressed up certain ways. And so you get play with the, the camera crew knowing this stuff, but not the rest of them. And so you can get some good asides to the to the camera, some side eyes to the camera. It's like, well, you guys know that I'm dressed as a boy. Um, I, I somehow I don't know if it works fully, but uh, Midsummer Night's Dream would be really fun to have Puck saying what he's going to do but then the video is showing him <laughs> messing everything up simultaneously yeah so i'm gonna go do this <laughs> i've got the plan that would be good you know you that's could sort of like what that's a very dwight thing from the office or even like, like going like something and then he it's showing him interacting in the office yeah or, or like doing the uh the extra level of like even like on-screen text saying not <laughs> Uh, I can't remember the name, the names off the top of my head of who he's supposed to be doing the potion to, but like clearly yes. labeling, he's like, I'm going to go give the potion to X and the, the screen is saying not X as yeah. you see video of him putting it on, <laughs> you know, give, giving the potion. Yeah. Was it Helena is one of them, I think. The only character's uh, name, names that stand out to me are, is Bottom, who obviously gets caught <laughs> into, all, into all of this. <laughs> yeah, and Puck. If I was in the, if I was in the production room on this, I would say... Uh, I'm I'm kind of thinking of like documentary now approach to Macbeth, <laughs> <laughs> you know, saying it is actually serious, but, but you, perhaps it could be done with a way, a layer that's across the top that just shows it is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know, as Macbeth is like, you know, going through all of his, uh, you know, the forest uh, marching like <laughs> machinations. Like, look, I, it's, I, they, I'm told I'm going to be the one in charge. Why is this other guy in charge? Um, that there's a couple He's of just those, saying that uh, to the camera. I was told it was yeah. going to be me. <laughs> I was told I'm, it was going to be upset me. about this. And yeah, then and and his, then his wife just moment. like slides in there. It's like, honey, I have an idea. Or, or, or like you, you see him being kind of whiny about it. And then it's just a shot of her looking super serious, like by herself and saying, I'm going to make it happen. It's on me. <laughs> yeah. She's like watching him whine through the window or something. And then it cuts to her. It's like, I'm going to take care of this. <laughs> like, I yeah, feel exactly. like there's a lot of possibilities. It's just hard to like nail down exactly which one to do and how to do it. Because if you are doing Macbeth, I think it, it would become be... comedic. Like, like if, if, if it feels like it would end up being comedic. Uh, mm-hmm. Just because of the term mockumentary. Right, and that's why I think, imagine, do that, imagine it with Bill Hader <laughs> playing Macbeth. Mm-hmm. Or uh, Kristen Wiig and then as you Lady get to Macbeth. Kind of, <laughs> Bill Hader, Kristen, Kristen Wiig, exactly right there. Uh, well, and, and you do uh, the shot where like the cameraman like pushes open a bathroom door and you see her like scrubbing her hand at this public restroom stuff. <laughs> that's <laughs> muttering to herself won't come clean mm-hmm. and and hater H- hater macbeth is going uh hey you know they're clean <laughs> they're they're clean let's you know we're late let's go mm-hmm. i mean when i so, when so I it could it. be dead it, it could be absolutely serious as played mm-hmm. but completely comedic as, yeah, as taken as seen um when i imagined um Romeo and Juliet, it was a little, it was, it was kind of like that. And you have moments where like the crew has snuck in on Romeo and Juliet thinking they have privacy and then something tips over it and they make a noise and both of them look towards the camera 
and like they make eye contact with the camera it's like oh you guys know about us now oh and and so like the deal is we're not going to tell anyone as long as you let us keep following you guys (laughs) there's a couple i think would be on the list of would never work like a fellow uh titus andronicus that would be a tough Uh one julius uh, caesar yeah to shift this tone to (laughs) yeah so there's definitely some that wouldn't work even some of the dramas but Iago would give a really mean confessional. <laughs> like <laughs> he would. But but the the tone of uh you know uh, it becomes almost uh like like you can't really film the murder scene and feel like a camera crew's legitimately right there. <laughs> like unless like the camera yeah. drops to the side and you see people tackling Othello. <laughs> now I just thought about this. You know what could work really great is the Tempest. Oh. If if somehow there was like some stuff going on and and there was like a camera crew with the shipwreck. Mm-hmm. Right. But it becomes a little hard so to explain because the, the, then you also need the camera crew that's with um uh you know Caliban and you know like how 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 do you get both <laughs> right, right. storylines happening? Yeah. Unless you're gonna do like a a, a real reinterpretation where we're only going to see it from certain points of view. And, and that's who the camera crew is with initially. And maybe it expands as, as it goes on. Cause yeah, it's Prospero, Prospero has some of the, the most famous monologues uh, mm-hmm. in that one. Oh, I, I, there's definitely something it, here. I, that, yeah. That it's just not quite a very conceit. Uh, it's just yeah. like which, which story and exactly what tone do you want to be presenting even as you're like shifting it to mockumentary do you, if you're doing Hamlet do you keep it serious uh, yeah. or or like like we were saying with the Macbeth one do you start to overlay comedy in how the audience is receiving it even as it's being played straight by the actors mm-hmm. yeah so I think somebody would have to kind of look through the complete works and really like get the get it to click for them but concept wise I feel like this has got something Oh yeah, definitely. And then being able to pull together a team. I mean, if you think about the great mockumentaries, right, with like the uh, Michael McKeon and and you know some people have been in the landmark ones, to just pull a, a kind of improvisational group together and then they riff mm-hmm. and and just start rolling. I think that would be where yeah, it could because really take off. Like I. I I mean, there's a version of this where it's all of Shakespeare's words, and then there's a version of it where it's not. <laughs> yeah. And and that would, I mean, I don't know which one For works. the broader comedy, you go with the not, where, yes, they're clearly following the beats of the stories, but they're allowed to, like, point out and some of some of this. Yeah, and they're doing some of the, the direct lines, but not too many of them. I like it. Uh, I think there's like there's almost like too many ways we can go with it to really really settle on one because I think this is a really rich vein of uh, potential uh, interpretation here. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, Andrew and I have gone. So Todd Peterson, do you want to uh, draft a public domain type work and a, a different mode of presenting that 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 work? Yes, and this uh, the idea I have comes from uh, doing a little bit of research uh, on uh, the Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka, and realizing that one of the the probably the great frustrations for Kafka is how funny he thought everything was, 
And it's always read, you know, in classes as, as just like, you know, absolutely stone cold, serious stuff. But apparently it, uh, when he would read back uh, work with friends or whatever, it was side splitting for him. So I was thinking the metamorphosis with like a multi-camera sitcom <laughs> approach. Um, okay. So and, give us a quick uh, you know, rundown it, it, of, of the metamorphosis. So you know the metamorphosis. Uh, Gregor Samsa awakes. He uh, all of a sudden he's a he's a bug, a you know, vermin, a cockroach, whatever. Um, and he's a giant. And, and it's one, really right? about he's, how he's, he's giant. Yeah, I mean it's it's like pound for pound. <laughs> you know where he is, and and a lot of it's just about how his family copes with the fact that now their brother is a bug. And, I'm sorry, uh, this premise um, is just so. They, you know, <laughs> it's it's amazing, right? And uh, and so he, they they all think he's a bug, and then it starts to get serious. Like, well, if a brother's a bug, he's actually the one who's kind of like a f- keeping him afloat financially mm-hmm. at this point. And so it's really about like you know what happens when the breadwinner is, is gone and turns into a bug, and it's it's always taken as this kind of metaphor for other things. But I thought, you know, what if it was done, you know, like all in the family, and it's something they're everybody's just- thinking about now because they're they're <laughs> restarting all in the family with Woody Harrelson and. Um, you know, you could you could really do this because in essence, it really is this like weird, strange comedy. But it's actually like all sitcoms, you know, it's like basically one place, well, one say, set. Um, the four camera thing would right? work. <laughs> yeah. So I think you have to do like a few episodes, like half a season where it's all normal and you're getting all the setup about how he's the breadwinner and he's supporting his parents and sister and he's really dedicated to to the job and everything and then one morning he's just a, he's he's the cockroach and the the boss comes in and doesn't believe and you've got like you've got to have a camera on his room where he's like not opening the door <laughs> and and then everything right. else is happening and you just have to be completely thrown by it you've had like four episodes of setup and then all of a sudden why did he turn into a cockroach? <laughs> and and the the question is is do you do it so that it it is an arc or is it sort of episodic like those things would be? Yeah, well, or like yeah. Um, um, the classics it comes, uh, you know, in the fifties, sixties, seventies, like every episode doesn't know the previous episode happened. <laughs> like the audience should be able to jump in, and it's not continuing from one to the next mm, and, okay. and if that's the case in the pilot so, so in a, he's the bug and that's the only time where it's like it's weird that he's the bug but from every episode they're on he's just a bug uh and, this and his sister's have. giving him apples and stuff yeah yeah and so in this way it's a lot like seinfeld right like it's it's really about nothing but it's just about you know like dealing with that but but walking around on the walls hanging onto the ceiling the room just kind of deteriorates and so in in a weird way you could kind of go David Lynch on it, at least in how it might look and how the you know the performance might might be a little mm-hmm. flat, and you just would always have this yeah this well, where it's so absurd, no one even realizes it's absurd anymore, right? <laughs> like it's just mm-hmm. <laughs> he's a bug. Yeah, I mean that's how you'd have to be played absolute mm-hmm. straight. Like they couldn't be like, oh, look at the bug on the wall. It's it would just have to be like this is just exactly. Normal, but terrible. Yeah. And then, you know, again, you could, you could do some stuff where you could use flashback that, that happens. And like, after a while we get to, um, 
what's going on. I, I love the moment when the boss comes over. <laughs> yeah, that, that's one of would be that's, the most that sitcom. is the most sitcomy thing. And you know, comes over there and just gives him <laughs> crap. What uh, about? About all this other kind of stuff. I, I think the like we're also like playing to some sitcom things. It'd be like any interactions with the government, with, like with bureaucracy, would be you know the 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 height for you know uh, the allowance of social comedy commentary to be coming in to the absurdity of this this you know comedic uh, premise. Mm-hmm. And so and so often, it, you know, they're they're talking to him, and he's probably just chittering. You know, mm-hmm. and then they do like, like hey, do they do like subtitles for him, but they don't understand it. And so the audience, right. and, and then they start talking about good. him like he's like he can't hear them. He's like, guys, I can totally understand what you're saying. <laughs> and then there would be these moments, like you know, because that one setup would be, you know, like an I Love Lucy, whatever. There'd be one room, two rooms, whatever, the kitchen, and they would be in these different places. Um, but you know, one of the things that uh, that you could do to break out is there's sequences where, as a bug, Gregor thinks about sending his his sister to school you know and um all this other kinds of stuff so you could play out these thought mm-hmm. processes but it would always come back to he's just hanging like, on the wall but you're a bug <laughs> like but you're he has to go sign forms you know <laughs> to, you know go, go sign up his sister for school he's a giant bug you know he walks into the school office <laughs> like like how does this get addressed <laughs> right now mm-hmm. and well, and then the arc, you know, would be um, there when Gregor, you know, gets sick and dies, et cetera, whatever. Everybody feels great. And the last <laughs> last time I taught this in a class, um, I, you know, I had this. I said, "Look, they're all on the train and they're and they're riding out there, and 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 everybody seems to be doing well now because Gregor's <laughs> gone. Like they're thriving." <laughs> And, you know, it said, like, even his little sister, who used to be, like, kind of thin and pale, is now, like, sort of filled out and... and yeah, uh, healthier. You know, she might be able to... Yeah, she's healthier. She might land a <laughs> husband. And and that's what I said. It's like, so after all this sadness, the, the real sadness is that this family's better <laughs> off. <laughs> and so, I don't know. I think what's more funny than than realizing you're unnecessary. <laughs> because you're a giant bug. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Ungecipher, I guess, is the is the German for it. A, a vermin. <laughs> All right, uh, Joseph, do you have a, another one? Yeah, I. So, I, I kind of like what I'm going to pitch because I'm not quite sure how it would work, and I just want us to talk through it a little bit. I want to think about the picture of Dorian Gray, the classic. Mm-hmm. Oscar Wilde story about a man who never changes because he has a magical painting of himself that takes all of uh, the aging of, and, and the corruption. Like yeah, that's all, all of the evidence the of his various vices. Right. That all is on the painting. And he remains this like pristine mid twenties. I can't remember the exact age, but like a prime of life and is never mm-hmm. going to age as long as this picture exists. And I want to mix that with, the spy genre where it's always about how like so often how people can change and assume new identities but with dorian gray he doesn't change <laughs> like he's he always can't. just he, he is just dorian gray uh so, so you're gonna see him but he's uh, also ostensibly immortal if we're to trust the yeah. the league uh-huh. of extraordinary gentlemen <laughs> yeah 
because the painting is taking all of uh, the wear and tear. Uh, so, so there's this mm-hmm. other version of him that would be breaking down and wearing out and showing the, the cost of hard living. And you would have this perfect perennial, perennially, you know, uh, idealized Young James physical. Bond. But, uh, but at the same time, he, he can't do the spy thing of changing who he is because he just is Dorian Gray. Right. So he he can do it as long as he's not seen but if he's seen he like he can't sneak in somewhere by pretending to be someone else he has to sneak in completely undetected yes i think so uh and he almost becomes kind of the such a high concept he becomes the like the whisper like you know he was around a decade ago and he looks the same yeah, like, and, like the- and like people have all these all these photographs of him they're like i think that's the same guy yeah like the urban legend kind of builds up around mm-hmm. him and imagine if you did it as a sequence where like uh, I'm just going to kind of use the tropes of uh, of James Bond. So you know as Q has changed and Money Penny has changed and He's still the same. M has changed. He's the same. And so imagine if you just did this whole thing with like um not even the cool like like the Roger Moore James <laughs> Bond. And in um M's office is this painting. And they keep a sheet over and it. And as the and yeah, and, and and then M can go like, how is 007's mission going? Let's go check the painting. <laughs> and, and like he's got a, a you know blood pouring out of a, a wound in his forehead. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And everything that we see is that he's just like you know like tucks his, his tie back into his jacket and uh, has a drink and then moves on. And, and there is a, a sort of a Kim- like you'd have in a video game, something that's giving the readout you, you on see, all like, the things. You see, like, a really dazed, hungover look because he's drinking all the time. Like, in, in some ways, wait, the wait, reality so, yeah, is wait. James Bond is this. Because we've it's, had it's, this yeah. film series for so long. But we have to make it so, like, excessively cavalier about it. Like, he's yeah. just walking into the place, and he knows that if he walks in cavalierly, he just has to kill everybody so that they don't know it's him. And it's becoming a problem in the modern age because we're getting photograph and video evidence of him being the same guy, but mm-hmm. you, you have like these montages of him just walking in and they can't kill him. So he just casually drinks all the drinks and keeps fighting and killing all the other people. <laughs> and they're like, you're the and worst he's ab- spy. He's ever. absolutely calm. <laughs> yeah. And he's constantly calm and- about it. And, and so you get like these moments where you're cutting back to the painting and you're seeing all these bullet holes from machine gun fire, <laughs> you know, tear into the painting and people are just getting really freaked out by him. And at one point in time, he's on fire <laughs> and then that changes. But, but there's, this is really fun to think about, but there's some, uh, some serious cultural stuff that this could unlock. Uh, I read an article a while ago that all of those kind of spy thrillers that came out of the sixties were, uh, an attempt to kind of mitigate the absolute freaking out that was going on, uh, about the cold war mm-hmm. that, that, that putting across these spies as cool romantic figures, nothing ever flaps yeah. them. Right. It, it said, we don't have to worry about everything messy that's going on to make the cold war sort of function. These guys, they don't care. They just ride airplanes and they dress and nice like and they have drinks. The most extreme version. Like he can't care. He can't feel any of it, but it's just absolute carnage. Right. And that's the thing, like everybody who's behind the machine of, you know, international intrigue and spy mastery would know 
there's such a cost to do this work. There's so much violence. There's so much, uh, uh, you know, things we would never want to know about how the sausage is made. And the front is, of course, you know, James Bond or the Saint or, um, you know, any of these other kinds of people that are, you know, Ethan Hunt, front or Ethan Hunt. Well, yeah. yeah. It's like, yeah, there's there's no damage to this. I mean, and like we, we have Except the reality for, that like Tom Cruise literally no. can't make a Mission Impossible film now without breaking, but we never see that in the film, right? In the, in the film, he's perfectly fine with every yeah. stunt, but even making this fake version of it, he's breaking his body uh, in order to mm-hmm. do it. And, and what if the painting also captured the collateral damage? Yeah, like the bodies that he's leaving behind. Right. Like, it, and that they're now they now join him in the so painting. now it's a massive mural <laughs> like it is taking over <laughs> yeah it's like it becomes Guernica <laughs> yeah I think there's, really something, there's, there's something going on here but I don't know like what, how to crack, what, one like, thing the that narrative I love element. I also don't know the narrative yeah. enough of the picture well, one thing back. that I love is that it started with but me the saying, end of it, he, he, saying like I, I don't like the idea of a spy who can't change his identity because literally he doesn't change that's what intrigues me and it became something else so quickly once we started brainstorm it. Uh, that's why I like doing these kinds of episodes, guys. Mm-hmm. But, but in the end, the, the picture Dorian Gray ends with him attacking. Cause the he painting. sees himself. He's always hidden it from himself. He doesn't want to see what he's really like. Right. So, so if, if that followed that plot point, like all this stuff is going to happen, but it have to ends up with him seeing spy the painting. confronting the painting. And and he he would have to just lose it because he finally sees the monster what, within, like all the of facade, these missions. Yeah, the, the like, projection mm-hmm. is so fake. And I think that becomes yeah. that. I think that narrative that you were talking about, Todd, about um, you know, countries pretending that there's all this classiness and we don't have to worry about the Cold War and kind of denying the atrocity that's necessary to maintain that facade. I think that actually works very nicely when you get that narrative like this is what he has done and this is what has cost him in the painting what versus what he's presented himself I, as I, for I, so I think it become um similarly powerful to to not just him confronting himself but like you said if this is in the office of m like m just looking at it and said like what are we doing like like what what yeah. Well, you know what is or or a new a new um agency director or something comes in and they're like what's this and they like learn about the painting and they're like are you kidding me have you seen this thing <laughs> well and you know p- part of the the arc that runs between um uh the the bond reboots you know casino royale and skyfall um in particular is this recognition that's like we've always romanticized espionage and what is it that uh, the Judy Dencham says? Uh, 007 is a blunt instrument, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and I think that that this being able to show within the international espionage genre that you know what this is a hard this is a hard life. It's hard on people. It's hard on the world around these people. Um, but it's what we do so that we can have um, we can have the Dorian Gray. Life, not the picture of Dorian Gray life, but the Dorian Gray life. We got to okay. do a bunch of ugly over here in order for everything to be nice. Quick theory for for how they do this. What if part of it is that they have somehow done this to him 
like they're not using him because this is how he is, but they've somehow done this to him. And they also somehow are like wiping his memories after the missions. He doesn't know what he's done and for how long until he sees the painting. Ah, so it's a little, that's bit, of, what's so a little bit of winter soldier is or like, born identity yeah. mixed in. Right. Yeah. It's like, yeah. this is what you have used me for. I mean, in that case, it could be, uh, I, I mean, we maybe are like, like there's obviously something supernatural for going straight, straight up, but maybe it is kind of like mm-hmm. the board. I did like, he just finally sees the files of what he's done. He's like, well, wait, <laughs> yeah. hold on. This, this cool. is who I am. Are you sure? But I, I do. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, you you have to just kind of accept with the premise. There is. I like the idea of the supernatural version of it, where it's showing both the toll on him and uh, and on like the collateral damage of yeah the deaths and destruction that happens around him. Mm-hmm. I'm, yeah. I'm thinking of like a three way mashup now with that one Black Mirror episode where uh, you record everything. I'm not familiar with that one. And if there's it were, too much media, I've been um, able to watch all of Black Mirror. So. There, there's too much media. But any, in, anyway, it's basically that premise. Like there's a story that emerges from the what if you could, using your eyes as an interface, eyes and ears as an interface, record everything and then scrub back through it, your own past, mm-hmm. and scrutinize it. And so imagine uh, this done um, on a science fiction side rather than a fantastic side. and all of these operatives are endowed, whatever, with that capacity. Yeah, they have that that recording mechanism. Yeah, and what happens if all of that stuff was never made available to them, except for it was made available to this one guy? So, so we're, mm. we're removing like the the physical toll he's felt, all the wounds and everything. He's just kind of like an Ethan Hunter or James Bond as we currently have them. He's just really good, so he survives it all, even though it hurts. Yeah, and and they and they once they're done recording they block it out for him. So he has these physical wounds and he's like, I don't really know how I got there. And he doesn't know what he's done to other people as he's gone. I mean, I, or, or I, I, and that's really winter soldier or dollhousey yeah. or whatever. I, I think you would even though, like you could say like, he's always just moving on to the next mission and it has all kind of blurred together. And he just doesn't think about it. Like he's choosing not to think about it until he's confronted with it all. And it's yeah. overwhelming. Yeah, there's got to be something where or she, it could be a there's Doria a disconnect. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, I think there's there's some stuff yeah, here, and, and kind of like the Shakespeare world, but like we've explored a whole bunch of options. I don't know which one of these would be the one to to really nail down and work on, but I, I think there's enough there to say that that combination is intriguing. All right, so I think okay. we'd be circling around to uh, Andrew for the next pick. Yes, I have two on my short list right now and i'm gonna throw one in and if you guys think it's too easy we'll move on to the other one okay three musketeers western is that too easy i mean it's uh three musketeers is obviously the adventure vein of storytelling it it transitions into Mm -hmm. western so there's a natural combination there uh but then there's also elements that that don't translate as well or, or that you, you have to find a new reason for, for certain. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you're not dealing with the Pope and the Cardinal and all that sort and, of and stuff. Necessarily but, I mean, organized you can throw things like that yeah. into, you can throw things like that into, you know, a Christian church in a, in a Western town and things like that. So I feel like maybe that one's, that one's not as much fun to like dig into. 
Uh, what, what do you guys think? I think we could, or do you want to throw out your other one and we'll just choose one of the two to... Let me, let me throw out the other one, which is Gulliver's Travels in Film Noir. Okay, let's play with that one. <laughs> because you have this narrative where he can he can actually narrate about these you know experiences and you just you just put it all in black and white <laughs> and you're dealing with this film noir stuff Gulliver's Travels I think there's something there yeah because because the narrative element where it's you know kind of a travel log is a nice connection to your classic film noir where the lead is and telling a, you what's going on and entering a different and, and world setting up the scene. Yeah. And then you have him. I mean, now we need to figure out, it's like, okay, is this like classic film noir, like post-war fedoras and trench coats or it's third man noir. It's gotta be. <laughs> we, post-war we, Vienna. We haven't posted it <laughs> yeah. yet, but we just recorded an episode on, on uh, third man just like two weeks ago. <laughs> oh, yeah. So that's a really good choice for us right now. <laughs> yeah. That, that is very um, fresh. Okay, so I mean, it's it is post-war fedoras and trench coats. Then, but you've got to be you know a few years after that, and he's telling these stories about his travels after the war, and he got lost, and then you know made it back home and everything, right? Yeah, and, and I mean, so much of what the reason we still talk about Gulliver's travels, it's not. The idea of, you know, the city of little people, or the city of giants, or the city of talking horses. It's the, the commentary about the absurdities of real life that he encountered that is being dressed up in those weird worlds. But he's really talking about, you know, their real life. And there's so much absurdity in the polit- the geopolitics in immediate post-war and the divisions that are there <laughs> that I think you could, you could lean into a lot of that commentary with the weirdness um, I, I think you still keep a lot of those weird elements, but you just are maybe tweaking what commentary is being had about the insane bureaucracies yeah. that built up so quickly, uh, or the you know the divisions uh the, the, that were made so hard hard lines so quickly, right then. Yeah, and and I mean when you're dealing post war, you're dealing with just such a shift in how international the world is all of a sudden. Yeah, you know, like how small the world is. And so maybe it's he's sent to be an ambassador to these other countries, which there's been minimal actual direct contact with. It's all been maybe military contact or through allies and, and things like that. And so, you know, he is the first point of contact from whatever country to whatever country. I love the idea of if, if it's done in this kind of uh, third man cloak and dagger kind of thing that when he like just straight out of the gates like when they catch him and tie him down <laughs> it just it just becomes almost like absurdist cinema like mm-hmm. but also the, the yeah. narration like what was it uh, i'm just kind of scrolling through it it seems that upon that first moment i was discovered sleeping on the ground after my landing the emperor had like it's just it's great i think it just lends itself um yeah, you can you can you know harden that edge a little bit and give him like I'm a I'm a bit more of a tough guy tone, but it's not hard to to adjust that into film noir. That's right. I mean, because they got you got noir gives you things like Palookaville, and how close is that to <laughs> Brobdingnagian or Yahoo's or whatever? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think entering these 
different worlds just you know start tilting the camera and doing some really harsh lighting oh dutch that up <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah exactly uh I, I think that definitely fits for uh you know aligning with the weird worldview that he has you know the the imbalance that he's feeling uh as he's trying to understand the customs of these new peoples that he's coming into contact with and and you know not understanding exactly what's going on around him yeah uh, dutch angles work for sure. And I remember, I remember I, it was years ago. I had this as an undergrad when I, last time I read it all the way through, but I always was um, kind of overwhelmed by, we get the Lilliputians and we get the, yay, but we don't like the horse people and like the city in the sky. And that's all where it goes yeah, all into the weird. That would be the really cool thing. Imagine doing this as like a, also as prestige television, like do this, but do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you need a kind of a, a mini series. Yeah, not a single film. You've got to have him going to the different places. Well, and, and as soon as you said, like I mentioned, the city in the sky, which is the one that so often gets forgotten uh, in his weird travels, it immediately made me think of uh, Fritz Lang's Metropolis, which is like just yeah. riding the line between a film noir and science fiction. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in, in the way we oh, see that uh, helps a lot because I was grounding, I was grounding the film noir too much in my mind. But you've got to give it that weird angle. Like he you is going to German places that nobody's throwing. been. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's like I am I am going to these places where nobody's ever been, but I'm coming from a Western perspective. Yeah. And then there's a time <laughs> I'm just scrolling through. A voyage to Laputa, uh, Balnabari, Lugnag, Glubdreb, and Japan. <laughs> You know, and I think it's like I'd even sort of forgotten about that. But there's this whole like there's a stop in an actual yeah, country. I guess if you're an Irish guy like Swift, Japan would be weird enough on its own. Yeah, it's a, it's a major othering that happens. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> um, I, I do. Okay. Before we move on, I just want to throw out that on Audible, there is a version of Gulliver's Travels that is read by David Hyde Pierce, which is one of the best Ooh. matches of text and narrator oh, that man. I can imagine. <laughs> that sounds really good. Yeah, it, 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 he does such a good job uh, in, in reading that one. And I think in um, in a classic tradition of a noir hero, Gulliver needs to be carrying a flask everywhere and every time he sees something new, <laughs> he's just, he's just going to start drinking that right. morning. <laughs> or, or, well, if not drinking, then uh, he sees something crazy and he just turns around and lights up. It uh, starts walking away as he's smoking. Oh man, like they're giants. Okay, that's right. It, it, then this would cross. It would just be like Swift Noir Lebowski. <laughs> okay, I think that one turned out okay. I think the narrative element really helps that carry through. All right, uh, Todd, do you have another uh, draft choice you want to make here? I have a draft choice and. Um, I have a little bit of a preamble on this. Um, a while ago when I taught Jekyll and Hyde, um, there was a really great afterwards in the, I think it was a Signet version that I taught um, from Don Cheon that says everybody gets um, Jekyll and Hyde wrong because they kind of got the Bugs Bunny cartoon first before they read <laughs> the core text. And so that, that people have this sort of misapprehension Um of what, what it is, you know, at the whole like er, 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 
transformation. Um, and that there's this sense in the original text about um, degeneration or like reverse evolution and whatever. And I thought, you know, given the how serious um, this book really is, it would probably deserve an after school special uh, <laughs> approach to now, really, really I- help kids learn about the consequences of, you know, messing around with drugs and self-experimentation. <laughs> self-experimentation and all these other things that really can cause trouble um, for people who really don't know their science. So I put after school special on this list and I realized my kids aren't going to know what an after school special That's is. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's not exactly a thing. So it probably bears some some uh, description. So after school special, there was a period of time, 70s and early 80s, when – um, there were a whole bunch of uh, an attempt to use the platform of television to teach really essentially kind of shallow moral lessons um, uh, about uh, the kinds of normative behavior that you would expect, but also to kind of broach like super surface level. Yeah, right? super surface yeah. level, but to also broach maybe for the first time some of the things that maybe aren't getting taught in any other way about drugs, divorce, other kinds of domestic problems. I guess I could maybe even like Google up, like what kinds of things were in after school specials. I would never watch them ever, <laughs> but I, my mother wanted me to. <laughs> oh, there's one on coming, coming, coming on about bullying. You need to watch this one, Todd. <laughs> That's right. Like, Oh, Hey, by the way, there's this show. Oh, and what does it say? Oh my gosh. Season 25. This went from 72 to 97. Wait, what? Did- wow. After school specials, ABC. Oh, um, was they, okay. it, it's described well, as was mo- Monsters and Mazes one of them? Do a search real quick. Was Monsters and Mazes one of these after school specials? That was about the dangers of D and D of Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> and, and You're Tom really Hanks. obsessed with that one lately, Joseph. Uh, I, I, the I, Hanks I did not. So great. I don't want to be here. I did not see this, but some of it's like um, surviving a breakup. Oprah Winfrey was involved in some of these. Um, the, uh, less than perfect daughter, um, testing dirty about like, uh, using drugs for performance enhancing drugs. These are ones in the nineties all the way down into like, when would I have been asked to watch these things in the, like 82, um, about depression. Um, uh, here's one with Robert Reed (laughs) from the Brady Bunch, a teen violation, violinist is torn between her musical career and her boyfriend. And so, I was thinking, yeah, so Jekyll and Hyde, right? Like there's this kid, he's like um, really good at chemistry and whatever. And maybe he was a – I want to change yeah, something about myself. Yeah, maybe he's a little bit of a wallflower and then he discovers or, that he, uh, Worried about his acne, right? Right, right, right. To- and so he's like, hey, wait a minute. I can uh, kind of test this potion on myself. And then all of a sudden he becomes like the guy at the dance. Everybody's <laughs> like, who's that new kid? Uh-huh. That new kid is whatever, Ted, Teddy Hyde. <laughs> and then everybody's like, oh, my gosh, and he's great. But then maybe Teddy Hyde is – he's really – But he's also really yeah. violent and yeah, he's been and, hurting and he people. like smokes. <laughs> and his parents are divorced or whatever and like that's his thing. And then, and then he turns right back into, you know, whatever, Tommy Jekyll. 
And then he's like regular and it's, you know, and everybody's like, well, where have you been? I've been out. I I don't know. Don't ask me. And he's kind of moody or whatever. I just think that it would play right into the whole thing. Um, Oh my gosh. Matthew Modine and Meg Ryan were in one. Wait, what was Meg Ryan doing? Uh, what, what was it? It was 80, 82 to Breaking 83. In. Amy and the Angel, a depressed 17 year old high school, uh, is uh, visited by her guardian angel. Huh, look at that. And okay. it, it's like uh, just random thing. I was doing some research on what Cheers would have been up against in its first season when it uh, had really low ratings. And there was a short lived sitcom that had it was Meg Ryan and Dana Carvey were two leads. And then it might have been like Don Rickles was the other lead. I'm like, what is this show? And it was about uh, like an uh, an older adult who has to go back to college for some reason. And he's moving into like Dana Carvey's dorm room. <laughs> something, something like that. It lasted one season. But I was like, what a weird cast combination for the early 80s for a network sitcom to exist. And yeah. you've just discovered yet again, you know, another one of those. So I think I think that there's a lot of ways that this could go, um, but I would sort of want to play it as kind of like an after school special Jekyll and Hyde teen wolf kind of uh, <laughs> vibe going on. Uh, well, and I, I see like I feel like the production values in tone would be more along like Saved by the Bell than, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, than, uh, yes. you know, even like Disney Channel movie or anything like that. Like, uh, like just very standard generic school set, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And it would have to be this thing where it's like a parent says, Hey, I've got this kid. He's really doing too much science. I need, I, 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 but I don't know how to talk to him about that, but maybe we could all sit down together and watch this after school special about this. And he'll learn to quit experimenting on himself. <laughs> My kid is too into science. Every <laughs> it's parent. It's anti-STEM. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't you just go play some D&D with your friends instead of always being in the lab? <laughs> That's definitely the message of the early 80s after school specials. All right, we're, we're a little low on time, so we're going to do one final round. Uh, we've we've done an equal number before, so I think what we'll do to select this final round is we'll, we'll each just say a text or author and then the potential genre, and uh, then we'll choose which one sounds the most promising, and we'll uh, we'll just work on mm-hmm. one last one. All right, so uh, my last options are Sherlock Holmes and musical theater. Ooh. Okay. I'm throwing Count of Monte Cristo and True Crime Documentary. I'm going to go okay. for Alice in Wonderland cop show. <laughs> and I actually have an idea. I'm I'm really I'm kind of curious about that one. Okay, I, I'm fine doing uh, Alice in Wonderland and cop show. Let's let's run through it. You didn't have a preference otherwise, Joseph? I just wanted to mention uh Watson's ballad about being picked on by Sherlock Holmes would happen <laughs> in the musical version. Of that and and what what a jerk Sherlock Holmes is all the time, but we don't we don't have to dig into that anymore. <laughs> Would the title of it be "You're a Jerk, Sherlock Holmes"? Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it is now. Yeah, I'm seeing it in a kind of a Doctor Horrible line, <laughs> possibly. <laughs> but that's not the one we're workshopping. We're gonna do Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, okay. and, uh, Al- was it cop show? Yeah. So here's here's my core pitch on this. Alice is the new cop on the force, hot shot just out of the uh, um, academy academy. And now is she coming from like a small town to a bigger city. Yeah. 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 That, that would be perfect. And she comes into the precinct and all the people in the precinct 
White Rabbit, Mad Hatter, et cetera, et cetera. And, and not like metaphorically, like literally the, the her captain's a white rabbit or something like that, right? It would depend on how the production wanted to go. It could be literal, could be metaphorical. Um, it could be just um, kind of like, you know, when 30 Rock um, like did a whole thing with Batman or like when Scrubs did Wizard of Oz. I mean, it, it could be one of those things mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, wait a minute, I get what they're doing. Or it actually could just literally be, let's do Alice in Wonderland instead of a little girl. She's just a new cop. Can I recommend a slight adjustment? Oh, yeah. I, I think I I think I've got something. It, okay, actually, it's a pretty major adjustment. But in you talking about, you know, cop stepping into it. What if it's she is a cop? And they're going to put her in undercover. It's a sting oh. operation in the underworld. Yes. In, you know, in the criminal underworld. And so she needs to make contacts with the white rabbit and the mad hatter and the mad queen is, oh, is yes. the boss. And they're trying to take down the criminal so organization. It's Alice in... So she needs to. Yeah. You, you so go. it's Alice in Wonderland. And um, gosh, well, I can't remember the name of that. What was the true detective? Yeah, something like that. So we're maybe getting into like the prestige cop show. Yeah. Uh, I'm a little bit. But so her job is to be undercover. She needs to infiltrate the criminal underworld that's populated by characters who I in, in my version they are humans but they're, you know, they're analogs representing. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're analogs. And so you've got the caterpillar and he's obviously the drug dealer. Um, right, right, right. And you've got the the Mad Hatter, and you got the White Rabbit, the, white the rabbit. money guy that's late to everything, and like always trying to track yes, everyone down. But he's, he's the banker, <laughs> yeah. So he's the corrupt banker. Yeah. Um, Cheshire Cat is like the dude that knows everything. Yeah, not technically part of the organization, yeah. and maybe knows that Alice is a cop. Yeah. Oh, and who is or, or he's giving her directions? Like Alice anyway. can't get a read on if he knows or not. Like he's always so ambiguous. She's like, "Is he hinting to me that he knows what that weird smile yeah. is?" Tweedledum and Tweedledee yeah. could be like and mechanics, you know, like uh, guys who watch whack guys. Yeah, kind of wha- whack guys. But it would be so great, like when the the caterpillar, the drug dealer, like says, "Well, who are you? Who are you?" Yeah. And it can just still be smoking a massive hookah. And really what they're trying to do I is have... get the Red Queen. Yes, that's that's the goal, is to get up there, but with enough security and knowledge of what's going to happen so they can bust it. Was there a very creepy adaptation of Alice in Wonderland in the 1980s with like Whoopi Goldberg involved? I am having a weird flashback to the commercial. I think so. I wouldn't put it past her. <laughs> I'm going to look into this real quick. I'm sorry. I'm derailing things. But um, but yeah, I think this works. So she literally has to, you know, be in um, in the criminal underworld. And she's trying to, you know, stay clean and not get sucked in too fully, which is kind of, if I recall, one of the, the elements of Alice in Wonderland yeah. is to not lose her bearings. Yeah, right. She's trying to make it through. And, but, you know, is she turning too much into a, a part of this world? And by the way, if you haven't watched the Disney, it's crazy town. The animated one? <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely crazy town. Oh, yeah. Like, don't let your kids watch it. It is 
It's bonkers, but it's awesome. Oh my gosh, there's a Jan Schwankmeyer, uh, or major, however you say that, uh, the Czech director. I just found that one. Oh, don't that one seems like it would be really upsetting. Things made out of bones. I mean, Alice in Wonderland is okay. Is pretty, it's pretty creepy. I was gonna say, it turns out and weird and nuts. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg was in an adaptation of Alice in Wonderland and looks terrifying as the Cheshire Cat. That is not the one I was thinking of. <laughs> that one's from 1999. Oh. The one I'm thinking of is is an earlier made-for-TV one. Okay. Don't know how I conflated those. But anyways, uh, but yeah, absolutely like, prestige, prestige police drama, maybe even limited run. And yeah, and so like the you you have five minutes at the beginning where you make it clear that she's being dropped in and she is to stay in until she can provide information to take down the red queen. And it should be. And it's, and it's like, it's total dark, no contact in or out until she and it finds should be that out. Like one of these BBC cop shows. Or like, like, yes, like, like, yeah, like, like, uh, like there is Luther. no light. It's yeah. uh yeah. <laughs> well, like, like Luther with it. Right, right. Exactly. And she has just got to stick it out and she gets like three seconds to look in a mirror and remind herself who she is once a day. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm just thinking about how to fantasy cast this one. And, and well, the Cheshire cat, like in his ambiguity, when he's saying like, which way do you want to go? Like he could be saying, I know you're a cop. <laughs> like, do you want out or yeah, I know you're a cop. Do you want or are you out? going or, dirty? Or right are now? you being seduced by this? Yeah. Like, are you going to go all the way? Ellen but she Page. also, like, can't get... Oh, I like it. Ellen Page should that. be Alice. That's good. Mm-hmm. I'm picturing... Joseph, you remember in um, in Pushing Daisies, uh, Emerson Codd, the big black guy? I'm picturing that for the cat. His name is Shay something, right? Oh. I don't remember. Um, but, you know, you know, a, a big guy who can play, is like... I'm either on your side or like I'm trying to keep you who you are or I'm tempting you the other way. Like, you know, somebody who's got that Chai ambiguity. McBride is the performer. Mm-hmm. That's who I'm thinking of. I don't know if that's definitely, you know, if it's gotta be that him, but that's what I'm picturing where it's like big and friendly, but also big enough to be dangerous. Yeah. It has to, there has to be threat. And that's what I think the, the sort of the key element of uh, Alice in Wonderland that makes it so great is that there is threat. Like it's not just weird. Mm -hmm. It's like weird and and dangerous. Like, like, am I safe? Yeah. I don't think I'm Is she really going to get killed? Cause she might get killed. And then it would be Mm -hmm. really interesting to see how then metaphorically you could take growing and shrinking and, you know, going through the doors and all Mm -hmm. that other kind of stuff. And then if it works, she goes season two. Going into segments of the organization. And, and if stuff. it works, you do a second season through the looking grass. Um, okay. What about the, the white rabbit or the, the Mad Hatter or the, the queen? Do we have any fantasy casting for that real quick? Or, or the, the caterpillar who's the drug dealer. <laughs> oh man. Fantasy, totally fantasy. White rabbit is Tom Hiddleston. Yeah, that would be good. But can you picture Tom Hiddleston being late? Well, I was going to say, and but like uh, the F. Scott Fitzgerald, Tom Hiddleston from, uh, oh, okay, from uh, Midnight in Paris, who's like, right? So he's a little bit absent-minded. Yes, 
So but I don't also, know if you guys okay. go in the, with the flow of whatever's around him. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you guys yeah. watched ever watched Justified, but in season two, there was a character, Mags Bennett, who's this amazing character actress. And she would be the great wet red queen because she just looks like plain, but she's really scary. Not familiar, mm-hmm. but I completely trust your fan casting. Yeah. And then we've just got um, a caterpillar and a Mad Hatter. Let's see, what are the characteristics for the Mad Hatter? It's uh, kind of it's chaotic. It's Kelsey Grammer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's my fan casting for a Mad Hatter. Mm-hmm. And and he's all. It, it seems like he's maybe just on the edge of going completely crazy. Well, yeah, like the Kelsey Grammer uh, on the ledge in season eleven of Cheers when he's considering jumping. He's really just trying to get Lilith's <laughs> attention back. <laughs> and who are we? And yeah, caterpillar. Okay. And then we a caterpillar. Woody Harrelson. <laughs> I mean, it, I'm just picturing him at like I can't even like in my brain get through watching Woody Harrelson ask, "Who are you?" Like I can't possibly try and imitate a Woody Harrelson performance. Or, about or I mean, the other obvious Jeff Bridges, right? Right. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess really any of our iconic stoners are who we're imagining for yeah for this uh yeah, they, chong, cheech or chong cheech and chong both <laughs> you <know>? right <laughs> oh yeah or uh seth rogan right didn't he he's, he's definitely uh entered that although that i just saw him he was trending on twitter today he might be too hot for that oh what about uh, apparently um oh I was, i'm blanking you're you're gonna know who i'm talking about uh Mm. He's 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 done films with Seth Rogen. Uh oh, I just had it and it's gone. Uh he was Harry Osborn in the original Spider-Man trilogy. Oh. Um Oh man, now I'm spacing on, on We his, all have his a name. space in our head right now. <laughs> yeah. And, and people Absolutely. are yelling, James Franco. There we go. Franco. Yes. James Franco. Yeah, that would be the role that James James Franco would would angle for that. Mhm. I think there's some some strong possibilities here. And you've got, yeah, that season-long run. And you've got, this is going across several months or possibly years where she's undercover in this in this operation. Mm-hmm. And then you get to have things like the Tea Party. Mm-hmm. The caucus oh, races. What's the name of the mouse at the Tea Party? Oh, I think he's the Dormouse. I think that's BJ Novak. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> or they're they're like asleep. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. This is. I. I think this one's pretty good. All right. I, I, it's undercover, deep cover, extended amount of time. Yeah. That's a good modification. I like it. All right. Well, thank you, Todd, for joining us. Thank you, Andrew, for stepping in and uh, having a larger role in this episode. And thank you, listeners, for downloading this episode. For show notes and links to all the other great dueling genre shows, you can go to duelinggenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go check out episodes number 44, 98, 150, and 199, which are Halloween specials, and Todd Peterson has been a guest on every single one of those. And on all of them, we've played games somewhat similar to this. Uh, 
I, I can't remember all. We I know we built a Mount Rushmore th- fear in one of them. We did elevator pitches where we we're adapting horror characters uh, from like urban legends. We've we've done a lot That's of fun right. things for our Halloween specials. I think we built superhero teams one time. Yes, that was uh, that was one of our very first episodes. Mm-hmm. That was like episode ten or something. It's like it's like I think it might be episode six. Uh, right now, if this drops when we have scheduled, Todd, this is episode number two hundred thirty six of the Protagonist Podcast. So you've been there. For Holy a very smokes! Long time. <laughs> uh, you guys have grit. <laughs> still carrying on uh listeners you can reach us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com or you can follow us on twitter you can follow at protagonist pod or at jay dorowski producer andrew is at this minute and our facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast we enjoy our conversations there with our listeners uh todd would you like to remind listeners of uh your book that recently come out uh came out i know you've got another one that's in the works but you have one that's out now for purchase right I do have one out now. It's uh, called It Needs to Look Like We Tried. Um, it's a, kind of a novel in a series of linked episodes uh, where one character that appears in an earlier story reappears um, in a fuller or different form in another um, story. And um, it's just been a delight. It's been out for a year. It's with Counterpoint Press. Um, and you can uh, find it where uh, all good uh, books are found, your local bookseller. All right. Uh, well, we definitely recommend that, listeners. Uh, thank you again for downloading this episode. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. piecing it together give me a second todd peterson later on uh look up monsters and mazes tom hanks it's a young tom hanks having a mental breakdown where he can't tell reality from the D game he's been playing but it's called monsters and mazes